fact, I'm wearing two. I'm wearing both of the neckties I got for Father's Day. Uh, the first one is from my daughter, and uh, you may see it and enjoy it as I do. Uh, the second one's a little more difficult to see, but uh, it, it was from my son. It was from C's Candies. Didn't last as long. Well, maybe it will. Well, we'll argue about that. Uh, I was also instructed that I should uh, uh, defend the wearing of a necktie in the pulpit before the presbytery. This is not, in fact, a necktie. Uh, this is a uh, brace for my vocal cords so that I don't lose control of them, uh, as uh, Mr. Pontier did last night during the sermon. <clears throat> I also understand that, uh, based on the uh, performance uh, of uh, Mr. Pontier in the pulpit last evening, that I have uh, an hour and 20 minutes. Dick, you know that no preacher can do that. Tonight I would like to use what will be uh, described to you and should be described to you as a topical sermon. Uh, it's more accurately a consideration of a principle uh, and some applications from that principle. Now, that principle is called the regulative principle of worship. And it has a very simple definition, even though it may seem to you that that's a, a big, long term. Uh, Basically, it is that God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. Very simple. Uh, that's not so strange. We all do that, don't we? Uh, if uh, your birthday comes and your mother says to you, what kind of cake would you like for your birthday? And you describe this nice gooey chocolate cake that you would like for your birthday. And she fixes a carrot cake with broccoli on the icing, on the icing for you. What would you think? Mm, Mom, what have you done? You wouldn't be happy with it. Uh, my wife doesn't trust most things with four legs. Six legs is out of the question. Uh, eight legs is acceptable only if it is cooked and red and on a plate. Okay? If I go down to the pet store and I see in the pet store this beautiful tarantula, nice fuzzy little spider, you know, big as your hand, but nice fuzzy thing, moves a little funny, but he's cute when he does, uh, beautiful thing. I go in the pet store, how much is he? find out what he is, decide to bring him home to my wife, bring my wife this beautiful spider. Do you think she'll like me? She'll scream. Not to mention a few other things that she would probably do. All of us dictate how it is we want to be loved or worshipped. All of us. That God does so, it's not a surprise, is it? But God did so. He did so in the Old Testament. He did so in the synagogue system between the Testaments, he did so in the New Testament. And I'd like to begin tonight with Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those that love me and keep my commandments. God in the second commandment is dictating how it is that he desires to be worshipped. Now the Israelites heard him speak. They heard him thundering from the mountain. They immediately ran to Moses and they said to Moses, 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 please, God, God never, never has spoken to men before and men lived. 
And since that's never happened before, it just did. But it just, just never happened before. If God talks to us again, we're dead. So please, go up on the mountain and talk to God, and you come down and tell us whatever it is that God wants us to know. So Moses went up the mountain. And he's up there talking with God for 40 days. And the Israelites, while Moses is up on the mountain where they wanted him to go, said, Boy, he's been up there a long time. I wonder what happened to him. Maybe he died. If he died, there's nobody to talk to God for us. We don't know what became of Moses. So they went to Aaron and they said to Aaron, We don't know what has become of this Moses fellow. And, and we're, we're lost here in the wilderness. Make us a God to lead us back to Egypt. And so Aaron asked them for gold earrings. And they gave him gold earrings. And Aaron formed a golden calf. And God up on the mountain, looking down, saying, Hmm, what are these guys doing today? Well, he knew very well what they were doing. And he exploded. And he said to Moses, get down there quick before I wipe the whole mess of them out because these people that you have led out of Egypt, they're sinning against me already. And their sin was very simple. At first, they didn't listen to him. But secondly, they insulted him. I like to think of myself as big and strong. I'm not, but I like to think of myself that way. If somebody draws a picture of me and you draw a picture of me and I look uh, kind of like a watermelon, okay, if you draw a picture of me like that, I'm kind of insulted. So Aaron made a picture of God. And God looked at it and said, I don't look like a cow. Why do you picture me like a cow? I don't look like one. God said, as a matter of fact, to Israel, there's nothing in your experience that I do look like. Very simple reason for that. God doesn't have a body. So no matter what they thought of, couldn't be God. And so God's first point of dictating to us how he is to be worshipped is that he doesn't look like anything in our experience at all. And so there are no idols that you can have. No other gods. Not even any pictures of God. No representations of him. And that leads us to the next thing. What about the images? Not idols. Well... In uh, 1 Kings, when Rehoboam becomes king, uh, God takes ten of the tribes away from Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And he gives them to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, sits down and he figures this out a little bit. He's had an argument with Rehoboam and they're not obviously friends. And he says, if the people continue to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God of Israel, then they will eventually go back to their lord, King Rehoboam. And when they go back to their Lord King Rehoboam, they will execute me because I'm a traitor. Tell you what I'm going to do. And he took and he made two golden calves and he set one at the northern end of the kingdom in Dan and one at the southern end of the kingdom in Bethel. And he said to the people of Israel, this is what the Lord God of Israel looks like. Come and worship him here instead of in Jerusalem. He didn't say this is a new God. He said this is what the Lord God of Israel looks like. He's the beginning, if you will, of what the Samaritans become. You remember the Samaritans in Jesus' day? They said they believed in the same God as the Israelites. And Jesus had the discussion with the woman at the well of Samaria. We worship what we know. You don't even know what you worship up there. And yet you call him by God's name. They made an image. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, made an image of God. 
He didn't say it was a new God. didn't say it was an idol. It was an image of God. It was to help them focus their minds and make it easier for them to worship. And you know what happened to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Aside from the fact that he died. Well, you'll read about him frequently if you read through Kings and Chronicles. And he's always listed as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He's not complimented for his efforts at focusing the mind of the Israelites on God. God refuses to accept any effort on our part even to portray him. Refuses to accept it. Because he doesn't look like anything in our experience. Now, we come to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there are lots of gods, uh, Paul says in the first chapter of Romans, uh, that men have imagined. They've worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And they've imagined all kinds of gods. Some of them look like hippopotamuses, some of them look like human beings, some of them look like the sun, some of them look like the moon. They worship all kinds of things. God says, there's only one of me. And you will worship me according to my standards. This is the commandment. You will worship me according to my standards. And so we say that we derive the regulative principle first from the second commandment. Secondly, we talk about deriving the regulative principle from the sacrificial system. From all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And I won't bore you with reading uh, to you most of Exodus and a good part of Leviticus and some of Numbers and a little bit of Deuteronomy tonight. But I may refer to some of those verses and as I do, I'll mention them. But I won't ask you to refer to them. Unless, of course, you do want me to go for an hour and 20 minutes or longer. And if you do, then, of course, we'll be glad to. In the daily offering system of Israel, the Israelites were required to offer to God at the tabernacle first and at the temple a sacrifice every morning and every evening. They were required to offer, and there's a list of them, every day, one lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening. Every Sabbath day, two lambs in the morning, two lambs in the evening. And if it gets to be the 49th day, seven times seven, then it's three lambs in the morning and three lambs in the evening. Sacrifice to God. Now, why would God be so particular that he demands to be worshipped morning and evening every day? Well, for this reason. God was demanding of the Israelites that they proclaim their allegiance to him, that they identify themselves every day. We do that when we come into church. We come into church and we are addressed as the people of God. We come into church and we take uh, sometimes the words of the doxology, sometimes it's an opening hymn. We take the words on our lips and we begin to identify ourselves. We say, we have come to worship you, Lord God. We proclaim our identity. The Israelites were also required to offer incense. And incense represented the prayers of God's people in Exodus chapter 30. The morning and evening sacrifices, by the way, are listed in Numbers chapter 28. Uh, you may read all 31 verses of that chapter about those uh, uh, offerings if you wish. Those offerings were designed to proclaim who Israel was. Not proudly. We are the people of God who have come to worship. Then in the system of offerings, uh, we'll take them in a particular order. 
though they show up in the scripture in varying orders. Uh, there's one order in Exodus, a different order in Numbers, and Deuteronomy has uh, one of them uh, even out of those orders. There were thank offerings. There was the first fruits offering. The first fruits offering was that you came and you brought to God the very first things that your garden produced. And now you don't say, but I don't have a garden. Okay. In those days, most of the people were farmers. The very first thing that their farm produced, uh, I do a little bit of gardening in the backyard. The first tomatoes are always the tastiest. They're usually the biggest, too. Uh, The first corn is always the sweetest. The Israelites were to bring the very best that they had, the very first to God, and they were to proclaim to Him their thanksgiving for the harvest that they didn't have yet, but that they could see growing on the stalks. They were to proclaim their thanks to God, their praise of Him and their thanksgiving to Him. They were to bring a tithe, Leviticus chapter 27. They were to bring a tenth of everything they had, even when they had a uh, short year, short fall money-wise in the year. They were to bring a tithe of everything they had because they were to proclaim to God that they were grateful for what they had received and that they were interested in caring for the people that were His. Bring the whole tithe, Malachi says, into the storehouse and test me. See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you bigger than your barns can hold. It was a demonstration of their thankfulness for being the people of God and for having been cared for by God so that they had a harvest at all. And then there were free will offerings. Don't get me started on free will. The word free will appears in the Old Testament more often than the word predestination appears in the whole Bible. But every time it's a free will offering. And what it is, is it's an offering that you don't have to bring. Uh, there was a suggestion that there would be a burnt offering tomorrow night. Uh, the burnt offering would be a, a, a thank offering, if you will, a free will offering. Uh, and uh, there, was re- there were regulations for how it was to be offered. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody by the name of Cohen here or Priestley. Uh, we may not have anybody who's in a position to actually offer that, but we'll find out tomorrow. Those offerings were things that you didn't have to do, but you brought them as an overflowing expression of your joy of your thanksgiving to God. And so as part of the Old Testament worship, there was proclamation of who they were, there was thanksgiving, and then there were peace offerings. Now, peace offerings were not the offerings that you brought when you knew you were at war with somebody and you were just trying to make peace. You weren't ready to say, I'm guilty, and you didn't want to say you were guilty. You just wanted to say, look, let's forget the whole thing and be friends again. That's not a peace offering according to the Old Testament. Peace offerings in the Old Testament, you'll find uh, the grain offerings in Leviticus chapter 7. You'll find wave offerings in Leviticus 7, Leviticus 3, Exodus 29. What they were, the grain offering was something that you brought that you couldn't burn, although you were supposed to scatter a little of it on the flames. But it wasn't a burnt offering particularly. It was designed to be given to the priests. It was above the tithe, It was a demonstration that you wanted to proclaim before God that He was so good and that He was so gracious and that He was so great that this was your tribute to Him for His greatness. Same was true of the the wave offerings and the heave offerings that were involved. A wave offering was where the priest took the offering and instead of putting some of it on the fire because it was uh, sometimes still in the sheath, he was to take it and he was to wave it before the Lord. 
That's my pet peeve, by the way. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout for joy. Not like this, please. Like this. It's an offering of praise. Make it an offering. Hold something up. Don't stick somebody up. Hold something up. (laughs) The wave offering, or sometimes called the heave offering, whether it was meat or whether it was grain, was to be taken, was to be waved before the Lord, and then it belonged to the priest. It belonged to the man who represented God. And again, it was designed by the people of Israel to be their tribute to their God. It was praise. There was, of course, uh, another offering too. There was the sin offering, the guilt offerings. You have them listed in Leviticus 6, so Leviticus 16. Uh, You have other portions of them listed in varying other chapters. The sin offering was when you knew you had sinned. And so you came to Jerusalem with your sacrifice walking behind you. A lamb, a ram, a bull, male, one-year-old, perfect, flawless, the best of your breeding stock, so that the atonement for your sin was expensive. It wasn't just, oh, well, I have to take a lamb to Jerusalem. Uh, That one doesn't look so good. We'll take that one. You had to take the hope of improving your flock or your herd. You had to take all of the possibility that you would be able to make more money next year. You had to take that to Jerusalem to atone for your sins. And that was the offering that was taken to the temple. And after the priest inspected it and declared that it was an acceptable offering, it was taken into the altar, and there at the side of the altar, the priest slit its throat. And he poured out its blood beside the altar. And then he opened it up, and he took the fat off the entrails, and he took the other parts of the offering that were God's, and he put them on the flames on the big altar. And then the rest of it, some of it went to the priest for his portion, the right forequarter, and some of it had to be eaten by the person bringing the sacrifice, and some of it could go home with him. It was a proclamation that I'm a sinner and that something had to die to atone for my sin. There was confession of sin. There was repentance involved. That repentance went all the way to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was uh, one day of the year in September on which God had declared there would be a special feast. Uh, There was, by the way, another thing that probably needs to be mentioned, although let's talk about the... Let's talk about the Day of Atonement first and then mention the other feasts. On the Day of Atonement, God specifically took special sacrifices. There were more morning sacrifices that day and more evening sacrifices. And there was a sacrifice in the middle of the day. They took a goat, two of them. And they took one of the goats and they took it into the temple and they slit its throat and they burned it as they were supposed to. They burned all of them. The other one they took and the priest took it outside the camp And he put his hand on his head and he confessed all the sins of Israel on the head of that goat. And then they took a stick and they drove it off into the wilderness. Not like a golf club. They took a stick and they drove it off. Because a goat out there by itself doesn't have a chance. Something's going to get it because it doesn't have anybody to protect it when it sleeps. But what it was designed to show was that God had taken the sins of his people and he had removed them from Israel. Now I should mention Passover and I should mention the Feast of Weeks, which we now call Pentecost. I should mention those along with the Day of Atonement because they were the three times in the year when the Israelites had to come to Jerusalem 
That was a special kind of worship. They were supposed to worship every week, but they didn't have to go to Jerusalem every week. We'll talk about that in the synagogue system. But three times a year they had to go to Jerusalem because there was something more. I'd like to suggest, uh, and I'm not prepared to go deeply into it tonight, but let me just throw it out for your thinking process, and perhaps you can run it against me and we can talk about it. They were the sacraments. Circumcision was the sacrament of baptism. The Lord's Supper was these three festivals where the Israelites had to come together. And they had to do this all together. It was a special kind of worship service. Special kind of participation. If you were an Israelite, for example, and you went to worship and you worshipped every Saturday, but you didn't go to Jerusalem those three times of the year, done. You weren't obedient. Because they were commanded worship, but they were a special kind. They were not the regular worship service. We also talk about deriving the regulative principle from the priesthood. And I get a kick out of some of this. Uh, You may want to read this evening Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, where God describes the kind of altar that he will accept. He says, you will make my altar, and you will make it out of uncut stones, 12 of them. You will set those stones around, make it as even as you can, I suppose, and you will offer there on that. You will not build an altar with steps. Why not? And Exodus says, because the stones may see up your robe as you go up the steps and may see that you don't have any underwear on. That's not acceptable to God. Now, I need to ask, with all of the details that we have seen about the the sacrificial system, with all of the details that God gave us in terms of what he would find acceptable as we addressed him, and then he goes to that length, without expecting us to pay attention to the details of worshiping Him? That's an awful lot of pages that He spent in the Old Testament for something that doesn't matter anymore. Of course, I suggest that it matters a great deal still. You may want at some point to start at Exodus chapter 28 and read the next four or five chapters about Aaron's clothes. God takes a great time in detailing Every stitch that Aaron is supposed to wear from his underwear on up. Everything he wears is described by God as he explains to Moses how to make it. This is what you will do. This is where the stones will go. This is what the breastplate will look like. These are the gems that are to be on the breastplate. This is the tribe that each gem represents. All of these things are spelled out in specific detail because God was serious about the details. He was serious that he was going to explain to us how it was that he would be worshipped down to some awfully small details, if not to the smallest of the details. Uh, I would leave uh, those uh, chapters for you to read and suggest that uh, sometime you might wish to do that. Uh, For my purposes this evening, unless you want to make this a 13-week class in Sunday school as we have done in La Mirada, uh, Dr. Sanchez did express a little trepidation as to how I was going to condense 13 weeks into one evening. Uh, I told him to bring his coffee. Uh, but I'll leave those chapters for you to read so that you can see the detail that God went to 
And what I would like you to understand from the details that God went to to explain how he would be worshipped acceptably, I want you to understand that God is serious about how he is to be worshipped and that he's not willing to accept any other kind of worship. Suppose, for example, you are an Israelite and you decide that you're going to join the 4-H club and you join the 4-H club and you raise this absolutely beautiful hog. Oh, it's, it's grand champion, blue ribbons all over the place and you want to offer it to God as a sacrifice. Is it acceptable? Nothing pork's acceptable to God at all. Period. Suppose you have this beautiful cat and you think this cat is just so wonderful, you want to give it to the priest as a gift, as an offering to God, an offering of praise to God. Is the cat acceptable? No. Just in case you think I am a hater of cats, I am. But dogs aren't acceptable either. Okay? God is very specific about what's acceptable to Him. Suppose I am an Old Testament priest. And I have the robes that God wants me to wear. He's got them set out. But for Father's Day, I got this beautiful red vest. And I just want to wear that red vest to express before God my joy at the way my family loves me. Acceptable? No. Nope. Because God said, my way and no other way. We also talk about deriving the regulative principle from the synagogue system. Now, the synagogue system begins in the Old Testament. It probably begins back in the days of the judges. Probably begins back there when the Israelites in the various towns had the elders of the city who gathered together every day. You see an example of it in Ruth, chapter 4. Boaz has decided that it is appropriate that some levirate marriage be done for Ruth. And he knows who the man is who's supposed to do it, and he's in line next after him. And so he calls the elders of the city together. Now, how could he do that? He got the telephone out and called the elders of the city one at a time. said, meet me in the gate in 45 minutes. No, he went to the gate where the elders were accustomed to meet. Because in Israel in that day, the elders had become the immediate system for judging. You had a dispute. You had a contract you wanted to witness. You went to where the elders met in the gate of the city. You see it in Proverbs chapter 31, where the excellent wife makes it possible for her husband to sit in the gate with the elders of the city. They sat. They probably did a number of things. But among the things that they did was they taught the law of God. And out of that began to grow the synagogue system. Uh, we see it growing uh, further on uh, until the days of Ezra. And then in Ezra, we see Ezra calling the men of Jerusalem together and setting them in a place for worship. We understand that in the course of the time in Babylon, when they could not get back to Jerusalem for worship, that it was their custom to meet on the Sabbath day and to meet and to study the Word. And Ezra brought that back to Israel when he came back. You can read some of that in Ezra chapter 8 and some of it in Nehemiah. And so the synagogue system began to grow up and it began to grow up so that there was a continuing form of worship. Now, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus picks up that form of worship and he begins to preach in the cities of Galilee and he goes into their synagogues. And I suppose I need to ask a question first. 
Does Jesus go into any place that a Jew is not supposed to go, according to God? No. He does go into some places that he's not supposed to go according to the Pharisees. But not according to God. He goes into the synagogue, and he doesn't go into the synagogue and just sit there and say, well, I really shouldn't be here, but I'm here. And He goes into the synagogue, and he stands up at the time when the visiting rabbi is asked to come and to read. And he stands up and he reads the scripture. The scroll of Isaiah is handed to him. And he turns to the place in Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah. And then he preaches. One of the shortest sermons on record, Mr. Jeru. He says, this day the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sits down. An interesting thing about the synagogue, by the way. In the synagogue, the congregation stood and the readers stood when they read the word of God. And then the readers sat down and the congregation stayed standing for the sermon. We'd like to try that, preachers. Somehow we got this turned around. The synagogue system, at least as we see it with Jesus working in it, has the Word of God primary. Now we have some records of the uh, synagogue system, and we look at those records of the synagogue system and we see that their worship was this. They proclaimed their position in Israel. In some ways, perhaps they had a call to worship. There are several blessings that they speak. They turned to prayer. Jesus talks about that when he talks about the Pharisee and the publican. But they turned to prayer. After they turned to prayer, they had the scripture reading. And then they had an explanation of that scripture reading, a sermon. And then they had a hymn of praise. Some have argued that it was always a psalm. Some have argued that there were other things that they sang. I wasn't there. I don't know the answers to that. But in the synagogue system, the synagogue picks up, without the sacrifices, it picks up the proclamation of who the people of God are. It picks up the praises of God and the thanksgiving to God for what He's done. It picks up in the teaching of the Word. It picks up the confession of sin and the instruction in what God has said to His people. Just like the Old Testament sacrificial system taught. We also talk about the uh, regulative principle derived from the New Testament. And we have Jesus. Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 4. Jesus teaches us on prayer in Matthew chapter 7 and John 17. Jesus teaches us about praise as He speaks the praise of His Father. And we have the beginnings of a New Testament outside of the synagogue talking about the elements of worship. And sometimes we see them put into worship. Uh, do you remember uh, Acts, let's see, it's Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's preaching. And he's preaching. And he's preaching. And Eutychus falls asleep on the windowsill. And out the window. Uh, I don't think you've experienced the eight-hour sermons. Paul may have had as much as an eight-hour sermon that night. And Eutychus simply fell asleep. The primacy of the preaching of the Word is what we see as New Testament worship is begun. In Acts chapter 2, when the New Testament church has its beginnings, Mr. Scipione referred to 1,900 years of preaching the Gospel. Some have suggested that maybe one of us should have stood up and heckled him a little bit and said, boy, I thought the Gospel was preached all the way back from the days of Seth on. But the New Testament church begins. And as the New Testament church begins, there is... The church gathering together 
for the apostles' teaching and for the study of the Word. And so in the New Testament, the primacy of listening to God speak. Now in the Old Testament, the people of Israel listened to God speak too in the sacrificial system. But they didn't do it while they were offering their sacrifice. They did it because they knew what sacrifice they were supposed to bring. And they did it because of what went on in the temple. Now let's picture this for a minute. Let's say the Israelite nation had five million people in it. And let's say one million of them recognized that they were sinners. And let's say that a hundred thousand of them recognized that they were sinners every day. So you have a hundred thousand people coming every day to, to Jerusalem with a sacrifice behind them. Can you imagine the line? The priest has to kill all those animals. He has to burn all that stuff every day for these people. What did they do while they were in line? They sang psalms. They spoke about the Word of God. They testified to the great things that God had done. And they probably even went so far as to ask each other to help them with the sin that made them come. Boy, I saw you in line yesterday. This is what my sin is. What's yours that you keep coming back for every day? Pray for me, brother. That was where the Word came in in Israel. And so they talk about the, the disciples meeting as had been the, the want of the Jews, but to meet in the temple to study the Word and to meet in the temple for the time of prayer. We also have a couple of comments that are made in the New Testament. Uh, Mr. Pontier uh, looked at some of them last night. Uh, but particularly uh, on uh, Colossians chapter 3 with the kinds of music. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 we are told to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs represent the ideas of music. Some people have said that they represent the ideas of music in the Old Testament because there are three divisions in the Psalter in the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. dates to about 200 B.C. Uh, it was uh, allegedly made in Alexandria by uh, 70 elders in 70 days. Uh, allegedly, they were all in different rooms and they were all operating only uh, either from manuscripts that they had or from the direct inspiration of God. And they all came up with the same thing. Uh, I'm not going to comment on whether or not I have any uh, beachfront property in Florida for you to buy if you believe that. But at the same time, that was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was common throughout the world. The Jews had the Hebrew. The people who didn't speak Hebrew had the Greek. And Paul quotes from the Septuagint with great regularity. But in the Hebrew Psalter, there are five divisions, not three. And I need to remind you something of something about Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, wasn't he? Calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews? Reading from a Greek Old Testament? Gamaliel would never approve. Gamaliel was Paul's teacher. Never approve of this. Uh, if it isn't in Hebrew, it's not God's Word. Uh, I once had a, a small run-in with uh, Elder Deru. I had preached from the book of Revelation, and I had said that the scroll that appears in the book of Revelation was obviously written on only one side, and the reason that the two seals were broken was so you could pull back the, the, the corner and you could read just a little bit of it, but not enough to read it clearly. And then the Lord opens it wide. And after the service, uh, Mr. Deru came to me and he said, of course it was written on both sides. 
And I immediately went into a panic because when an elder comes to me and says, you missed something, I'm trying to figure out what it is. I said, what was wrong? He said, well, Dutch is the language of heaven and no Dutchman would waste one side of a piece of paper. (laughs) As far as the Hebrews were concerned, God only spoke Hebrew. He didn't speak anything else. Dutch notwithstanding. Paul, I am convinced, did not refer to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because he was referring to the Psalter but because he had three classes of music in mind. And I'd like to read a little bit. This is from Robert Rayburn's book on uh, Come Let Us Worship on the Regulative Principle. One of the major contributing factors to the superficiality of the lives of evangelical Christians in our country today is the failure of the church to teach and use the great hymns of the church universal in their services of worship. We have reared a generation or two of Christians who prefer sentimental songs with highly questionable theology to the greatest Christian poetry which has ever been penned. For an example, on a recent questionnaire which was submitted to thousands of Christians in this country in an effort to determine their favorite hymns, the two ranking selections were The Old Rugged Cross and In the Garden, neither of which can actually be classified as a hymn. I have already made reference to the sentimentality and bad theology of In the Garden earlier in the book. While the Old Rugged Cross is considerably better, it is not a true hymn. It is a subjective and sentimental gospel song. Because of the great popularity of these two songs, I realize that many readers will immediately resent my criticism of them. I can only hope that they will give careful thoughts to the problems of these two songs. And then I'd like to skip over to where he defines the different kinds of music. Perhaps we should proceed no further until we have made clear what constitutes a true hymn. Augustine, in a comment on Psalm 148, gave a very interesting definition of a hymn. He said, It is a song with praise of God. If you praise God and do not sing, then you utter no hymn. If you sing and do not praise God, you utter no hymn. A hymn, then, contains there three things, song and praise and that of God. Praise, then, of God, according to Augustine in song, is called a hymn. Now, what Augustine said is true. It's not an adequately, excuse me, it's not an entirely adequate definition of a hymn. In the book, The History and Use of Hymns and Hymn Tunes by David Breed, which has been put back into print recently, according to Dr. Rayburn, he says this, First, a true hymn must be thoroughly scriptural, both in sentiment and expression. Second, it must be an objective expression of praise to God and thus devotion in the purest of senses. He includes in this qualification both profound reverence and liturgical propriety. The fact that it is devotional does not mean that God must always be addressed personally in any true hymn, but that he must be uppermost in the thought of the singer. The motion of a true hymn is always Godward. Thirdly, a true hymn must have such lyrical quality that it must be sung in order for it to receive its best interpretation. Good hymns are far better when sung than when spoken, even by the most skilled elocutionist. Then he speaks, uh, he has mentioned a spiritual song to us. He defines a gospel song as this. A gospel song is a sentimental song which expresses to the people or from the people their response to God's word or is an encouragement to themselves uh, to a greater spirituality. And then, of course, he defines a psalm. And he points out that a psalm is, in fact, inspired word of God praise. 
And I'd like to use that to begin. Uh, I must concede that up here somewhere, I left the second page of notes for that, and I can't find them now. But that's typical of me, so I apologize to you. Uh, I am on a page of notes now that uh, you do not have access to, and I don't have it to put up before you. I'd like to use that to begin. There it is. Because I wrote in red, it looked blank to me on the piano top. Okay. So I'm blind. I'd like to begin talking about the parameters that are used and the precepts that are used by this. There are three basic forms of worship in the church today. The first basic form of worship is that the preacher is the actor and God is the prompter and the congregation is the audience. And God tells the preacher what to do and the preacher does it and the congregation goes, wow! And the second one is that the preacher is the prompter and God is the actor and the congregation is the audience. And the preacher tells God what to do and God does it and the congregation says, wow! In the scripture, the preacher is the prompter and the congregation is the actor and God is the audience. Remember what he said about a hymn? That its focus must always be Godward. Well, worship must always be focused on God. We're privileged in our congregation to have a, an excellent accompanist. And he has credentials longer than my arm. Uh, he understands music in ways that I will never understand it. He is marvelous in his work on the keyboard. But the moment I begin to notice his skill on the keyboard in a worship service, he's out of place and he's distracting me from God and he doesn't belong there. There are hymns that I'm sure you've sung, or songs perhaps that you have sung in church, where you have been enamored of the voice that you hear singing behind you. Oh, that's a beautiful voice. I'd love to turn around and see who that is. That's just such a marvelous voice. As beautiful as it may be, and as awesome as it may be, if that were praise to God privately from that individual, he's out of place because he's distracting you from God. Suppose you have a preacher whose elocution is marvelous. He is a skilled preacher. He can keep the attention of everybody from the youngest to the oldest for an hour and a half. Nobody notices how fast the, the time goes. And everybody talks about this wonderful preacher but can't remember what he said. Ah, he's out of place because he's distracting you from God. Another corollary of that, please. What does it matter what you feel when you leave the worship service? If God's the audience, doesn't it matter what He feels? If worship is accurately done, you will receive something and you will go home with a great deal. But that's not the point. The point is that God leaves the worship service having gotten something. And if anything else happens in that service, then according to the regulative principle, as we've gone down and we've tried to show God's attention to details, and the sacrificial system was always focused on Him. 
Why do you burn the kidneys and the fat over the entrails and the hide and uh, the kidneys themselves and uh, the liver? Why do you burn those? Because God likes the smell of organ meat and fat? No, because God was saying to you, my way and no other way. Focus on me and what I've asked. Why can't I bring a lamb that, that's all white on the outside and he looks good but I happen to know he's sick? Why can't I bring him? Does God really care? God's going to sniff this sacrifice? Like, yeah, oh, that was right. I don't like that one. No, because God was saying, I want the very best of you for me. Not the preacher. For God. The point was that everything was to be focused on God. That everything in worship is to focus on Him. And if you go out of there saying, that was a sermon that I didn't understand and it was horrible, that the piano player was not in tune, that the piano wasn't in tune, and the guy behind me is, oh, he's a monotone. It doesn't matter if you go out saying that if God was praised. Now, please, don't get me wrong. The best that we can bring is appropriate in worship. And a monotone coming up and saying, I'm the greatest singer in the world is not going to cut it before God or anybody else. Okay? And so I'm not saying that what we want to do is we want to make our worship services as awful as possible so that nobody goes away feeling anything except God. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that the focus is not on what the congregation receives, but on what God receives. We sang a hymn. We sang a psalm and we sang a, sang a spiritual song this evening. I don't know if you noticed. We sang the 23rd Psalm. But we sang a hymn, a hymn of praise to God. And we sang a subjective response to what God has done in a life. Psalm and a hymn and a spiritual song as part of worship. 